When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, uh, we normally engage in some banter, some light banter to start the CME, but this week, I feel like we've got too much to talk about in the wake of what was an absolutely wild UFC 280 card. We got a bunch of fights we need to break down. We got a crush of listener mail, as we so often do the week after high-profile pay-per-views. And we've got some interesting stuff now, actually, on the horizon for the UFC. So unless you have any objection, I'm going to say we just get into it, man. I mean, I showed up with like 25 minutes of prepared banter. Yeah, you're going to have to now save it. Now you tell me? You're going to have gonna to go s- banterless? You're going to have to save it for next week. Maybe next week we'll just go all banter and you, you can, uh, you know, use your banter then. New Patreon tier. Banter only. Just nothing but banter. Only banter. Yeah. Just briefly, though. Remember, you're uh, listening to the co-main event uh, podcast proper. The CME recently launched our new merchandise shop. We'd love it if you would head over to the website and check it out. Just click the new link at the top of our page on comainevent.com that says shop. There you'll find old favorites like our original Dundasso t-shirt designs and the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes merch. You can also find a lot of cool new stuff uh, like brand new Are You Fucking Kidding Me shirts, officially licensed merchandise for the dreaded MMA gods, and of course, get the hottest seller on the market, the Bobby Nux t-shirt remember we're partnering with our friends at superconductor on that shop uh superconductor is a brand and design studio you've seen their work on the cme for a long time maybe just didn't know it with our longtime collaborator johnny ashcroft superconductor builds brand worlds dreams up product packaging conjures content and illustrates illustrations they make art for communication and communicate through art we can't recommend them highly enough if you have any design needs at all, go hit up Superconductor at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at Studio Superconductor. We're also going to briefly remind you about our Patreon page where we do three additional podcasts every week. There's an official CME Discord message board, a lot of interaction to be had there, both with Ben and I, as well as the beloved patrons of the co-main event. And coming up this weekend... Remember, it's the CME live watch party for the Anderson Silva Jake Paul boxing match. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and join the team today. Uh, We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash. Remember, they are a production duo from 
Los Angeles, California. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. And remember, that's C-A-C-H-E in the word cash. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, where is this short guy? Islam Mahachev proves to be a giant talent in the UFC's most competitive weight class, and now he's going to fight Alexander Volkanovsky. I don't know if that makes sense, but you can absolutely take all my money. And in round number two, ah yes, the politics of TJ Dillashaw showing up to fight a fight he knew damn well he had no business fighting. And in round number three, there are probably legitimate arguments to be made for either Sean O'Malley or Peter Yawn winning their fight on Saturday. But a lot of you don't know the definition of the word robbery, and it shows. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN is rapidly becoming one of the CME's longtime sponsors. It's a product we can wholeheartedly endorse because Ben and I both use it on all of our devices. NordVPN is fast and easy to use, and it'll give you the peace of mind of knowing all your personal information is safe online, whether you're using the internet at home, traveling, or just running around town, and your phone is bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Ben, what's the thing you like best about NordVPN? Oh, you mean the encryption powerhouse, does NordVPN? That's the one. What I like is that feature that allows it to just kick on whenever I am out and connecting to a new Wi-Fi. You know, especially when you're a man about town like I am, going from various public Wi-Fis, whether I am at the mall, whether I am at the airport, whether I am at the Gentleman's Club, NordVPN has me covered. The Gentleman's Club? The Gentleman's Club. It's a gathering place for gentlemen. Huh. I'm going to have to hear more about that. When we're done recording, uh, let me tell you about the Nord security uh, bundle. Nord VPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go for the big dog, if you want to go whole hog, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker generate and store strong passwords and protect your files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive Nord NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main to grab one free bonus month as well as their exclusive 30-day money-back guaranteed. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from TRT Tom, our guy over on Patreon. He writes, something about UFC 280 broke my goddamn brain. We all know that this sport is rife with fuckery, but what the fuck was that? Let me examine some feelings I had after the last four fights on the card. I was sad after the Dariush fight because despite being a terrifying merchant of violence on an eight-fight win streak, they won't give him a title fight because he looks like a kindly pediatrician. (laughs) 
That's actually a terrific description. There of, are uh, worse things you could look like, but actually he yeah. does. Now that you say it, now I can't, I'll never be able to not see that. The Jan O'Malley decision was weird as hell. TJ went into a title fight with one arm and lost every second of it. And the reign of Chucky Olives came to an anticlimactic end via goddamn arm triangle. My feelings might be warped by my massive levels of hype beforehand, but is this the most fuckery that has ever been jammed into a UFC card, at least in recent memory? I may need to break from the sport now may need a break from the sport now, but I would love to hear you discourse. Now, obviously, Ben, we're going to talk about the specifics of a lot of this uh, various stuff, which TRT Tom refers to as fuckery coming up in the rounds. But this was all told, as I said at the top of the show, an absolutely wild fight night. A lot of weird shit went down. I don't know if you want to say it was wild, weird, or occasionally wonderful. Uh, but it <laughs> was really, it was really yeah. strange, man. It was really strange. Plus we watched it in the middle of the day, which always gives you a different point of view. You know, that's what I was going to say is whether you want to call it fuckery or, or whatever, we did pack a whole lot of living in all before like three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. In the one true time zone. Yeah. I mean, we watched all this fuckery go down, and then when the fuckery was over, it was like, well, now what am I going to do with the rest of my day? What other manner of fuckery may I uncover? I'll tell you what, man, I had I had some people over, had a little gathering over here at my place. Uh, you, you, you declined to attend. That's all right. Uh, we still had a good time, had various snacks, cracked a few daytime beers, watched UFC 280. There was even a raffle. Uh, and the fights are over. Everything's in the books. People kind of collect their stuff, gradually make their way out. And I'm just kind of standing there in my living room at like 3.30 in the afternoon going, boy. I don't, I kind of don't know what to do with myself. There's a whole like large portion of the day left. I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. I guess my question is, did we come out of this feeling positive or negative? Like I generally came out of it feeling positive. Like I thought that this was a worthwhile UFC pay-per-view. I enjoyed it. Uh, It didn't leave me feeling like I had been either ripped off or like we didn't get any answers. I actually feel like we got kind of a lot of answers and kind of a lot of different Uh, ways this past weekend but I always kind of wonder about maybe the non-hardcore maybe the casual you know who is probably apt to tune in or more apt to tune in for a pay-per-view like this than they are to tune in for some of the lower profile pay-per-views and I always wonder like when those people see some stuff like this go down like a lot of the things that happened at UFC 280 I wonder what their response is I always wonder you know even if you get like a really fast stoppage Right. Like, say, Conor McGregor knocks out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds and the MMA world is just like on fire about it. I always wonder if uh, if the casuals are like, hold on, I paid 70 bucks for what now? Yeah. I I mean, I think by this point, you kind of know what you're getting into when you buy the ticket and take the ride. But I do feel like if we came out of that one saying that we're unhappy or somehow not satisfied Maybe it's because, as you said, we did seem to get kind of a lot of answers. Is it just that people didn't like some of the answers? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you are prone to to like mixed martial arts, which, let's face it, is a goddamn traveling carnival every week anyway, this this should have been in your wheelhouse, man. You got You got a little something of everything at UFC 280, so I didn't necessarily have any complaints. We will get into the specifics soon enough next question this week comes to us from tim clifton also over on patreon he says evening chaps i have a question for the proper watching yawn versus o'malley the palm on the ground was used to make knees to the dome illegal the height differential seemed to open up either hand stomps or kicks to the grounded arm 
Is there anything preventing this? Now, I've never thought about this before, but this is actually interesting because we saw Peter Yawn engage in some foot stomps against Sean O'Malley and the foot stomp, obviously, a long and proud tradition here in MMA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I have never thought, nor do I know whether or not it would be illegal if you could also just stomp on a dude's hand because Sean O'Malley is sitting there, fingers splayed, yeah. right? And it seems like if you stomped on his hand that uh, there would probably be some bone damage happening there. And I and I don't know if that would count as like small joint manipulation or if that no, would be any, no any way barred from the rules. Because if not, just kick a dude in his arm, man. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see what in the rules would prevent you from doing that. I'd also think if you are trying to get the guy to lift up his hand off the mat so that he might make a knee to his head, then suddenly legal stomping on his hand is not a terrible way to do it. Right? Because what's your natural reaction going to be? Somebody stomps on your damn hand. It's going to be to jerk your hand defensively, reflexively back towards your body. And then you get need right in the dome. Yeah. So maybe it's something to think about. I'd also think though that, I mean, I've, I've heard from a bunch of MMA fighters who talk about how, Sometimes when they're throwing kicks in the stand-up game, like throwing high kicks, head kicks, stuff like that, especially early in a fight, they're not necessarily trying to hit you in the head. They're trying to get you to put your arm up so that they can catch you in the shoulder or in the, the, the bicep, tricep area. And if not break your arm, by when you go to block the kick, at least wear it down so that if we're going to be here for three or five rounds it's going to get harder and harder for you to effectively use that arm, either offensively or defensively. And if you can do that, then why couldn't you haul off and knee a guy right in his shoulder when he's, he's putting his hand down? Yeah. I think it's perfectly legal and maybe uh, a visionary technique. Well, now we're going to have to give uh, Tim Clifton proper credit if that becomes the wave of the future in MMA. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Royan Lee, who says, I have what are perhaps completely unreasonable takes on Benil Dariush's circumstances. And oh, that good. you want to open an email in a way that's going to get my attention. You just did it because I would yeah. love to hear some unreasonable takes on Benil Dariush of all people. <laughs> he says, I'm inviting you to check me on. So he's inviting us to check him on his unreasonable takes. He says, first, okay. though. First, though he is without argument, one of the best lightweights in the world, it is very clear that most people could care less, while people inside the bubble are being disingenuous about how much they would like to see him fight for the title next. Second, the way he responded to DC inviting him to call out the winner of the main event at UFC 280 started off very interesting, using the platform to draw attention to the plight of the Iranian people, then quickly and bizarrely pivoted to unsolicited and immensely cringeworthy missionary speak. Third, mm. he will never get a title shot. Am I being mean, realistic, both, or something else? Now, frankly, the only part of this that I would take issue with is I actually think people who watch the fights would, in fact, enjoy to see Benil Dariush at some point get a shot at the title. Uh, I don't think that we're being particularly disingenuous about that just because uh, he's a fun guy, man. Like, I enjoy now the description of him as looking like a kindly pediatrician but also a kindly pediatrician who will just mercilessly punch you right in your face hard. And I like, I mean, I like that about Benil. I think he's an interesting character to be perfectly honest. Also though, a kindly pediatrician who's going to ask if you've heard the good word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wants to share the, the, the message of Jesus with you. So that that's always, you know, that's, 
that is one way to go uh, with your post-fight mic time. That's not necessarily going to appeal to everybody. You do have to think, though, that if he's sitting in there in the back or whatever and Islam Mahachev wins the title fight and then is like, get Alexander Volkanovsky up here. He jumps yeah. over the railing and we're back. And he's watching those two guys face off in the cage and just going, well, fuck. Like, there's just, there's no way there's a whole lot of people watching that, seeing the the obvious sort of visual table setting for what's to come next and clamoring at the gates being, but what about Benil Dariush? Right. You can't do this to Benil Dariush. Like, it's just... He doesn't have that kind of a fan base for it, even if when you look at his actual resume, you would think, okay, maybe he deserves it. Yeah, no, I agree. And the shittiest part about that for Benil Dariush especially is that it's just like adding another guy in front of him, right? Because like Dariush, despite the fact that he has this long win streak, is probably realistically still behind a Dustin Poirier, a Michael Chandler, a Justin Gaethje in terms of The interest. Irish fella could come back at any time. The Irish seemingly. fella could stick his head in the door at any moment, and Benil Dariush would probably drop to fourth or fifth on the list of guys who are going to get a title shot next. And so it sucks for him to just be like, oh, now we're going to add Volkanovsky in there? Like, okay, I guess, whatever. Uh, and the truth is... Like Dariush had asked going into this fight for someone of the Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje, Michael Chandler variety as an opponent, which would conceivably jump him to the front of the line if he could win a fight like that. And the UFC was like, nah, how about Mateusz Gerrard? And Benil Dariush talked in the pre-fight about how he was disappointed by that and was like, okay, I guess I'll take that one. But now, now we're just going to start throwing other guys in there. It is actually kind of difficult to imagine that Dariush is able to extend this winning streak long enough to the point where he eventually gets a title shot because it is clear now that he is the new guy in the UFC who is going to have to keep winning until there's literally no one else left. Yeah, and we've seen how that can go sometimes. That maybe you, when you finally do get there, it seems, sometimes it seems like you spent all the good stuff you had on like a nine or 10 fight winning streak just to get there. That can happen too. Next question this week comes to us from Sidra Holland, who writes, legalized sports gambling has received a giant push in the MMA space, especially in the last year or so. It seems to me that it has turned what a... F- it has turned what was a fan base that was 90% filled with shitty people into even bigger assholes with their little nickel and dime parlays when they get busted. Please discourse. Uh, This is both true and also I think speaks to the plight of the industry in general, especially like the journalism industry, because uh, this is just where the money is, man. Like it reminds me of this. This happens frequently, right? That some industry will get an injection of cash and decide that it is either interested or mixed martial in mixed martial arts or just has the money to burn. And suddenly that's the new shit right in MMA right now. It happens to be legalized sports gambling. And I guess if you are a person who has either ridden this kind of boom and bust wave in the MMA industry or been victim of it in some way, at least with sports gambling, there is reason to believe that money's not going to run out. That yeah. it's just sort of, you know, that that might be a revenue stream that continues to replenish itself as everybody gets their little nickel and dime parlays busted. Yeah. I mean, in regards to how the fan base treats it, 
they do need to grow up and realize you are betting on these fights at your own risk. And nobody, especially if you're going to get mad at somebody who lost their fight and it fucked up your betting action, whatever. Don't you think that they're already upset enough about it for their own reasons? They had probably a lot more riding on it than you did in all possible senses of that word. So for you to come out and be like, well, man, I had 15 to make 37 and you <laughs> fucked it up getting on the Instagram, talking shit to him about it. You have, are you are showing us that you're not responsible or adult enough to handle sports gambling? Yeah, it should. And, if you, and you, should, you should stop until further notice. If you reach out personally to a fighter to let them know that they busted your parlay, it should be legal for them to punch you in the face. Like they yeah. should get the chance to come to your house and just punch you one time in the face. It is though, to me, I think that it makes sense that once legalized sports gambling became a widespread thing in the United States, that MMA is a place where it makes a whole lot of sense for there to be a whole lot of people engaged in that because MMA for one thing, fight sports in general have always been early adopters of gambling. Like that was basically if you go back to like the bare knuckle days and stuff, that was the only way you got paid. Yeah. There was no such thing as like a purse. It was all gambling and it was like winner take all. So you could get your ass beat and go home with nothing. But even when it was just offshore sports books, MMA was hot action and you'd, you'd see a whole lot of people wanting to wager on it. And now if you are somebody who enjoys sports gambling, you're going to take 20 bucks, spread it around on a bunch of different bets any UFC event gives you a ton of different things to bet on. Not yeah. only are, are there like 10 to 12 different fights that you can bet on, but so many different ways to bet on it. Like way more so than just, you know, will the Padres beat the Phillies? You know, so it makes sense to me that it would be a whole lot of interesting action going on there. It is curious, though, how the UFC came out and says, you know what, you can't, fighters can't bet on their own fights. Nobody who knows them, nobody shares a household, their coaches, their trainers, all that kind of stuff, can't bet on their fights. Like, it seemed like if you were going to make that rule, you would have made it kind of right away, especially you're you're in business with sports books like DraftKings or, you know, stuff like that is very prominently featured on UFC broadcasts. It's interesting, why now? Why did we just now come up with that? Yeah, I think that they probably discovered that some UFC fighters were doing very, very public uh, gambling operations, To, for lack of a better terms, Like, I know James Crouch, Krause was doing a thing where he was basically like crowdfunding gambling exports, exploits with, with one of his partners, uh, which I got a feeling the UFC was probably like, yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing that. Um so they they made that that rumor and again is or that that ruling and just another thing it's it's just another thing where uh it's we continue to stretch the limits of what the definition of being an independent contractor is for this company yep. even though this is this might be one you know you could probably make a good case for but uh still how much are you going to control these guys lives and and continue to classify them as independent contractors do you think maybe if you had been in a certain training camp around a certain gym and seen a guy's shoulder falling out repeatedly throughout the course of his fight camp, you might have been tempted to lay some action? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We'll talk about that later, I suppose. Uh, the next question this week comes to us from The Onion Ring Sasquatch, who okay. writes, So, Nikita Krilov is officially a man without a country as far as the UFC is concerned. No flag on his fight kit. 
no hometown listed on the broadcast, and Bruce Buffer conveniently skipped the part where he screams, fighting out of. The UFC is not even willing to say Ukraine on the broadcast, apparently. This seems really ominous, and a strong political statement from a company that supposedly favors free speech and has called themselves non-political. I'd like to hear what you each think about the motivating, what is motivating this move by the UFC. Uh, we have talked about this once before, and I would just point out that at least the official word is that this is by request upon uh, Nikita Krilov's uh, pre-fight rider or whatever you want to call it. The Nikita Krilov is personally the one who has said, I don't want the flag up there. I don't want you to say I'm from Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And this, and, and, you know, I think you can read a lot into that possibly about how Nikita Krilov himself feels. I know he is on the record from many years ago saying he feels more Russian than he does Ukrainian. But in this one instance, I would probably not hang this on the UFC. Uh, yeah. But yeah, just because of what he has said in the past and that it, it actually all seems to add up. Like first them saying like, Hey, he asked us not to put the flag up there, not to say, uh, you know, not to identify him as Ukrainian and then to have him come out and say, and it's understandable to some extent. Like, I think he grew up kind of in the Donbass region, which, uh, as we've all learned more and more about Ukraine and Russia, listened to the news over the last couple of years, feels like, you know, you can understand how maybe somebody who grew up there would feel a little bit more Russian or feel at least conflicted. That's not so clear for him. And at this particular time, maybe he thinks that he doesn't want to go out there. And if he puts the Ukrainian flag, people are going to see that as anti-Russian. Um, but it's also weird to me sometimes how the UFC, it feels like they like to pitch themselves as sort of apolitical anybody can say and do everything that they want we don't we don't take sides we're not you know kneeling for the anthem or shit like that they they sort of go out of their way to perpetrate that impression and yet so many ways where you look around you're like oh okay so uh one of ramzan kadyrov's kids is here huh yeah just took took a little break out from uh, you know doing war crimes all week to UFC all weekend. Like that's cool. That's cool, guys. Uh, I guess there's dude, like there's no such thing as being too big a piece of shit somehow that the UFC will not welcome you with open arms if you if you uh, hail from wealth and power. Yeah, so, I mean, the, all of all of this Nikita Krylov stuff aside, the notion that the UFC is some kind of bastion of free speech that is just an apolitical animal is total and utter horseshit and anybody who knows anything about the UFC can obviously tell that you can't sit here and tell me that you are an apolitical organization when the president of the company has spoken at the Republican National Convention not once but twice so that's a bit of a tip off there and I you know all of this stuff with Nikita Krylov and and not saying Ukraine and not putting the flag up there, even if it was by his own personal request, which again, I feel like if that's the case, you kind of got to honor that for him yeah. if you are the organization. It does feel noticeable when you're doing an event in Abu Dhabi that is primarily stacked with winning fighters from that region of the world and is clearly marketed toward, you know, uh, Russian people who are on vacation, like among others, but like that's one of the major demographics that the UFC wants to reach when they go to Abu Dhabi. That's why Habib went to Abu Dhabi a bunch of times to fight. That's like, that's why we had Islam Mahachev in the main event at 
uh, UFC 280 in Abu Dhabi and you just look down the card, it's hard to miss how many fighters from that region of the world we have on this card. So to market your event primarily toward, uh, you know, that demographic and then to sort of pretend like Ukraine doesn't exist, even if you did it for Nikita Krylov, it's just noticeable, man. It's just a noticeable thing to do when you're putting on a show in that region of the world. Yeah, well, I mean, also noticeable was when Russia first invaded Ukraine and there were a whole lot of sports properties being like, take our stuff off the Russian airwaves as sort of a, you know, just the way a whole lot of businesses were saying, we're, we're out of Russia as a sign of protest or whatever we're, we're pulling out. The UFC notably did not do that yeah. because they'll take any motherfucker's money. That is correct. All right, we're going to squeeze one more in here before we got to move, move on. Uh, from Dan Alexander, who writes, I know that Islam Mahachev will get the UFC 280 headlines, but I thought Bilal Muhammad put on the performance of the night. Please discourse. Of course, Bilal Muhammad did get a performance of the night bonus. He went out there and beat Sean Brady by second round TKO, which is, in fact, a huge win for Bilal yeah. Muhammad and hands the streaking Sean Brady his first professional loss. Yeah, and that was a really good performance in a tough fight. For Bilal Muhammad, because you could see that one early on. There was a uh, very little feeling out period before we just started planting our feet and going at each other. Yeah. And it looked like, okay, this is going to be a tough fight for both these guys. Everybody going to take some damage. And for him to keep coming the way he did and then to, to manage to end it there late in the second round, I tell you, I did not see that happen for him. I thought that maybe he was in a little bit of trouble here. He came in, I believe, as a slight underdog against Sean Brady. Uh, I, I had Sean Brady pick to win it. And to go out there and not only beat the guy, but stop the guy and look really good in the process, like that should put some people on notice. That that should show you that, that Bilal Muhammad is maybe better than people wanted to give him credit for. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, currently a nine-fight unbeaten streak for Bilal Muhammad. Eight wins and that weird no contest against Leon Edwards due to accidental eye poke. Although there was some evidence to suggest that one was not going Bilal Muhammad's way up to that point. But the most recent wins, a big one over Sean Brady on Saturday. Previous to that, Vicente Luque, Stephen Thompson, and Damian Maya. So it's not as though Bilal Muhammad is out here beating nobodies either. Like he's beaten no-name guys in this division. And, uh, you know, does a great job promoting himself. A guy that I think we all like. Seems like a smart uh affable in you know a guy who will engage he seems Bilal Muhammad seems to get it frankly seems to get the promotional side of things and I think maybe from a uh uh you know a, the fighting side of things just from from the point of view of uh the welterweight rankings let's say or the pecking order it feels like Bilal Muhammad needs to get a little bit more attention yeah. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, or concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We are going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now. Well, Ben, rarely have I felt so wrong personally about a couple of high-profile fights on the same card as I felt about Sean O'Malley and Peter Yawn, which we will talk about coming up in round number three, but also Charles Oliveira versus Islam Mahachev. 
I looked at the odds headed into this fight, and I thought they were out of whack, man. I thought Oliveira had the better rounded skills. I thought he had more experience. I thought that he had faced higher level competition. I thought that Islam Mahachev's style would play right into Charles Oliveira's strengths. As it turned out, Islam Mahachev was dominant. He basically cleaned Charles Oliveira's clock in the main event of UFC 280 en route to a second round arm triangle choke submission win, which is impressive to do against Charles Oliveira. And not only got the submission, but got like a pretty fast tap from the arm triangle, which just goes to show you the squeeze on Islam Mahachev must be considerable. Yeah. Well, what surprised me was not just that he was able to capitalize once he saw an opportunity for a submission, because we knew he had that aspect of his game. What surprised me was how well he did in the stand-up striking exchanges and how well he did in the clinch, which has in the past for Oliveira been a sort of transition game strength. It's a lot of times, since he doesn't exactly have spectacular wrestling, but still wants to get fights into a grappling zone where he can put his submissions uh, to work, sometimes we've seen him rely on the clinch to do that. that. If he can just get you up against the fence, clinched up with him, he's going to find a way to get things down there to, or to force you to give up something. And here it was like he was in the positions that he normally would want to get to, and he was being kind of muscled around. Uh, by uh, Islam Mahachev and who got that that sweet ass throw on him too yeah. which that's got to sap a little bit of your confidence early on into a fight when something like that happens I mean Oliveira handled himself well enough on the ground he didn't get mauled when he was down there he's able to use uh, the, the threat of submissions enough and uh, enough of an active game off his back to where he was able to get back up when he needed to and I was surprised also that that, that aspect of the fight played so little a factor because really what it was was him getting tagged with a couple good punches him getting dropped there and Mahachev while it seemed Oliveira was maybe a little bit still woozy from getting dropped locking up that arm triangle and then taking his time moving to the position to finish it from and it's I mean like I think people were giving Oliveira some shit about how quickly he seemed to tap from that but I think maybe what they don't realize is one when you're locking up the arm triangle that's it's the kind of submission where if you don't get a defense started in time, then you're screwed. It's not like you can let it get really deep. Let the guy get super far into the process of putting it on and then start trying a defense. So there's not a whole lot of defenses available at that point. It's that's one of those submissions where when people on the jujitsu match would be like, how do I defend this one? You'd be like, don't get there. It's it's like cancer. The, the, the trick to that one is early detection. Yeah, And if, if you don't do that, then you're going to find yourself with, with nothing that you can possibly do to get out once the guy actually moves to the position and puts the rest of the squeeze on. So I think that was it. It was Islam Mahajev having a good blend of being able to do all the stuff, having a well-rounded game, but also not so well-rounded that he forgot where what his bread and butter is. When he sees that opening, he's locking it up, trapping your arm there, not letting you get it back, and then taking his time moving to where he wants to be. Yeah, I agree with you that Mahachev's striking seemed much, much better than I expected it to be. I also thought Charles Oliveira's kind of uh, trademark pressure striking style, unexpectedly to me, put him right into the teeth of Islam Mahachev's offense which I was a little bit taken aback by. And we had talked last week about other people 
having this analysis that Mahachev kind of left his neck exposed when he was going for takedowns. And so I thought it was not uh, by accident that he didn't really shoot on, on Charles Oliveira's legs, that he instead used those trips and those throws that you were talking about. And the other thing that we had seen from uh, several of Oliveira's most recent opponents was that they were hesitant to follow him to the ground after they yeah. stunned him on the feet. And Islam Mahachev obviously certainly was not because, he, you know, when he did it a couple of times, he he dove right in there into Oliveira's guard. And the second time in that second round, uh, got that arm triangle choke past the guard and, and tapped him out super fast. So, man, I tell you what, all around impressive performance from Islam Mahachev, who is now your reigning UFC lightweight champion. Yeah, and he absolutely looked like he belonged there and was not awed by the moment at all because yeah. this is this was a lot you know he's main evented uh fights for the UFC before and he's been sort of in the spotlight uh people around him certainly have been expecting big things from him for a long time so it's not like he's just thrown into that but to be in the main event get your first crack at a UFC title uh at a big pay-per-view where you have a whole lot of people there a whole lot of supporters in the crowd there and a lot of people relying on you and to seem not at all the least bit gun shy or nervous or anything about like in that opportunity uh, that showed a lot of poise. I mean, especially against a guy like Charles Oliveira, who, you know, has had the title for a little while, has kind of gotten comfortable and, and built up a whole lot of confidence. And to go in there against that kind of a champion who has that that momentum and that sort of head of steam and to be completely unaffected by it that's impressive poise i think yeah uh, the ufc is obviously going to make a big deal out of the habib connection uh you would be foolish not to i think from a promotional standpoint since you know that's one of your biggest previous pay-per-view draws and now it seems as though his protege is going to be the uh the ufc lightweight champion perhaps for a long stretch of time and we get the photographs of uh mahachev carrying habib around the octagon as champion and then the the picture of Habib carrying Mahachev around as the champion. Yeah. So you get some, there's some obvious hashtag content to be made from that stuff. But then honestly, when Habib is standing there in the cage with his arm around him, like telling him to hold the belt and kind of acting as his pitch man, almost like his WWE manager. And it's Habib is the one who says, well, here's what we want to do. We want to fly to Australia and we want to fight Alexander Volkanovsky. I got to be honest, man, that worked. That worked for me. And I'm as skeptical as anyone else about any of this like UFC PR pitch trying to build fights and stuff. But I don't know, man, something about having Habib at this man's side being the one to be like, bring on Volkanovsky got me hyped. I got to be honest. Yeah. And I think that this is the kind of thing that the UFC itself doesn't proactively do all that much of is to use one fight to build clearly to the next one. It, it often seems, especially when you hear Dana White at the press conference or afterwards, like by the time they get through an event, they're just sort of exhausted and don't want to think about the next one quite yet. But to use that moment to be like, okay, let's set up this big fight for the future, get people excited about something, give them something that where they feel like they know what this means, what it's going to result in, and they can start to anticipate and get amped for that. That's just smart. That's just smart business in terms of fight promoting. Yeah, I agree. And we talked earlier in the show about how uh, maybe jumping the line here for a fight between Mahachev and Volkanovsky is going to leave a lot of top lightweight contenders shrugging their shoulders and asking what they yeah. should be doing for a little while. But 
I don't know, man. I think you got to do it. I think you got to pull the trigger on it just because it's it's going to be so awesome. Yeah. We did get one question I think we should briefly address here from our guy Shad Rap over on Patreon who writes, so what does uh, one Oliver Chucks now need to do to get another shot at the lightweight title? Who and how many would he need to beat? Uh, and that's a good question. And I don't necessarily get the impression that Charles Oliveira is like out of it now. You know, 33 years old still had been on a very, very long win streak during which time he beat some of the other top contenders at that division. So the fact that he he came out there and got beat by Islam Mahachev obviously is is a uh, a setback, a considerable setback, and it will it would take him some time to rehabilitate. But I'm, I don't think I didn't get the impression like okay, well we have seen the last of Charles Oliveira as an elite lightweight. I think he's still very much right there. Yeah, it did. When he was talking afterwards saying, you know, like, hey, he feels like he's done a lot for the USC. They need to do the right thing, give him a rematch. And also saying that he felt like he was ready to butt heads with the UFC on it if he had to. And I kind of felt like, "Mm, I don't know if that's the time to take that approach. Because it seems like that's how you get left behind. That's how they go, oh, you know what? Yeah, you you want that rematch? Tell you what, we'll... We'll talk to you about that rematch. We're just going to be over here in the meantime setting up this Volkanovski Mahachev fight. But uh, yeah, you know, we'll we'll put that rematch talk on a back burner somewhere. Like, I I can totally get how he would feel that way. But also, it's not like it was a back and forth fight or like there were any questions left in our minds at, by the end of it. I I just don't know if he's going to be able to say to the UFC like you I owe you owe me a rematch. I deserve it, and then be like, yeah, you know what. We will just go ahead and make the same fight over again rather than making a potentially big, like, super fight between two champions. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, you know what I noticed as I was watching this UFC 280 pay-per-view? We still putting uh, Chris Pratt tweets on the screen, bro? <laughs> That's really? what you notice. I mean, like, uh, he had to apologize pretty recently here for some comments he had made after he was at the UFC. Seems like he got a little bit uh, carried away, let's say. Maybe had a couple few soda pops and uh, was out here hashtag just saying stuff. Then he had to issue a contrite response to uh, middleweight champion Israel Adesanya. I noticed, number one, uh, we're still putting his tweets on the screen. And also, maybe we went ahead and and Chris Pratt had a PR firm draft those tweets for him. Because these were tweets. These were very much tweets of the all caps what a fight exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point variety where, on the broadcast where it's yeah. like are you even watching or did you mm-hmm. just or were you like out at the golf course and you pulled your phone out saw what was happening saw the fight that was happening just tweeted these two are animals hashtag ufc 280 you fucking kidding me that's how you do it it has been known that that's how you get on the ufc <laughs> broadcast so if he's paying at all attention then he knows that as well as we do. I mean, it just seemed um, like maybe Chris Pratt realized he should uh, tone things down a little bit. Just, just play color inside the lines. A yeah. Bit, you know, yeah, I'm okay. just saying, are you fucking kidding me? I'm kidding me. Um, well, Chad, I'm, uh, did you notice after this event, Dana White showed up to the post fight press conference. And for one thing, more and more Dana White seems like he is just so over this shit, bro. Yeah. Even after a big UFC event, people asking him, Entirely reasonable questions, and he's just acting like he is so annoyed that this extremely lucrative job he has as UFC president would require him to sit here and answer some questions. But uh, we did get a little update on the Irish fella here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because after 
you know, people started to notice that Conor McGregor had not been tested at all this year by USADA. And after, I believe it was MMA Fighting who reached out to USADA to be like, hey, bros, what's up? Can you not find him? Do you not care to find him? What's going on? And their vague but also telling response was, we can't tell you anything about any particular athlete except that the only way to not be tested would be to tell us that uh, he's retired and to remove himself from the testing pool, at which point he would have to get back in for six months uh, before he could fight unless the UFC exercises its unilateral power to waive that, as it did for Brock Lesnar, who then went ahead and popped LOL. (laughs) But so they issue that response basically saying, we can't tell you Conor McGregor pulled himself out of the testing pool, but we can tell you that would be one of the only ways that this result would have happened. And so then somebody asked Dana White, "Uh, did the biggest star in the company's history pull himself out of the testing pool? And Dana White's response was just like, mm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And they're like, so then he would have to complete the six-month thing before he could return and have another fight? Uh-huh, yeah. Just really muted response to tell us that while rehabbing from a debilitating injury and also while getting ready for a film role, biggest star in the history of the company, former champ in two divisions, went ahead and said, you know what? I would like to not be drug tested for a while. (laughs) And we're just going to really, we're going to try to downplay it as much as possible to keep it from becoming an actual story, even though it's kind of big news. Yeah. You fucking kidding me? Yeah. I hope that guy doesn't start posting real beefy uh, pictures of himself on social media. (laughs) Good lighting. Yeah. Just great lighting out there. You'd be surprised what you can do with the right Instagram filter, Chad. Yeah. You know what? It's got to be rough when your body is still at UFC 280, but your mind is in the world of the power slap league. It's got to be tough. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, I think after what we saw and heard, from T.J. Dillashaw after his loss to Aljamain Sterling here, a lot of us quite reasonably wondered, what was he thinking? What did he think was going to happen if he rolled into this fight having popped out his shoulder what he estimates to be about 20 times during training camp, seemed to know that it wasn't going to take much for that shoulder to come popping right out of the socket again. What did he expect here? And... I would refer to somebody who responded to me on Twitter. I wish I could remember who, but just saying maybe he thought Aljamain Sterling would come in with two dislocated shoulders. <laughs> and there's a part of that I, that I realize we're joking, but there is something to the MMA fighter mindset with that. And especially, especially the mindset of like how this sport works and how you have to approach it kind of as a, as a fighter. Because on one hand, TJ Dillashaw... He he kind of did everybody a disservice. The rest of the division, the fans, he signed his name on the line that is dotted, said, yes, I will show up and fight this fight, knowing that he really did not have a good chance to win this fight, that he was not physically fit to really be in there and compete and give us a real championship caliber effort. Yeah. But he also was somebody who had a two-year suspension for just plain doping, who last fought... You know, in the what summer of 2020, 
2021, uh, I believe, right? 2021, not this yeah. last summer, but you know, he had that that kind of questionable decision win over Corey Sandhagen uh, two summers ago, and the opportunity comes up to fight for a, a title. He probably could use the paycheck. He knows at his age that it's not like they're going to be endless offers for you to get back in there and fight for the title. That you got to kind of take your bite of the apple while you can. Did the structure of the sport and the way the contracts work, the way the money is all meted out, did that work against our interests as fans here to conspire where maybe if he didn't, if he wasn't doing that kind of math problem, he would have said to himself, you know what, this is not the right time for me to fight for a title. I don't know that we could ever truly put ourselves in the mindset of one of these fighters because I think they do come after it with a different point of view. And if you told me that on some level TJ Dillashaw and his team actually legitimately thought, at least partially, hey, we'll go out there and give it our best, and if the shoulder pops out, we'll pop it back in between rounds, I would probably believe that. But he also didn't expect to win this, and he knew damn well he shouldn't have been out there. So if you told me that a guy who hadn't fought in 15 months and been through all that other adversity that you just mentioned thought, I will at least get my show money, I think that was probably the driving force behind him coming out here and choosing to go through with this fight, even though he said himself that he totally destroyed his shoulder at the end of April, which was some time ago. Now, TJ Dillashaw is also 36 years old, and he said himself in the post-fight interview, I didn't want to wait another year before I was able to get a title shot. So clearly he thought the clock was ticking. I don't know if the clock was ticking to the extent that you take a title fight, you're just not going to win. You know, you probably have a hard time beating Aljamain Sterling if you got two arms. You're out there with uh, with just one working shoulder, you're probably uh, dead in the water. And I think TJ Dillashaw, if left to his own mind, would probably know that on some some level. Now, I will say also, this was one of the most arresting play-by-play calls of a UFC fight that I've heard in a long time. Because as Aljamain Sterling is beating the brakes off TJ Dillashaw, en route to a second round TKO stoppage. The broadcast team is proceeding to tell us the story of how TJ Dillashaw concealed this from us leading up to the fight, talking about how TJ didn't do an open workout. TJ didn't really appear in front of the fans this week. TJ seemed defeated in our pre-fight uh, interviews with him, Daniel Cormier telling the story about how it sounded like TJ Dillashaw might've texted him to be like, Hey bro, I didn't, there's something I wanted to tell you in private that I didn't feel like I wanted to tell everyone at the media, but I would like to discuss it with you. And then DC is like, I didn't get back to him. And now I wish I had, this was, they're basically telling us the story of TJ Dillashaw, uh, keeping this from us before the fight. And to me like that, as you said, I think in your introduction, this is just an example of how the system failed everybody. Because I think TJ Dillashaw probably did this because he needed the money. I think all Jermaine Sterling was denied a real title fight and a real opponent for a guy who absolutely needs all of the credibility he can get. And to go out there and beat a healthy TJ Dillashaw certainly would have been more meaningful for all Jermaine Sterling. And how yeah, people- I don't think he's complaining, though. I think Al- I mean, of all the people I feel some sympathy for, Aljamain Sterling getting to just post up on TJ and wail away on him while TJ lays on the belly down holding his shoulder. I'm like, mm, Aljamain doing okay. But it means, it means nothing in the grand scheme of things. It's not nobody who is out here 
uh, thinking all Jermaine Sterling doesn't deserve to be the champion isn't going to be like, well, look at this performance against TJ Dillashaw. Now we have yeah. no choice but to recognize him as the world's top bantamweight. And on top and of that... That's what he should tell him at the bank when he cashes the check. Go yeah. ahead and put this in my account. It means nothing other than the money. Okay, you're being... Uh, disingenuous right now and that's fine uh, <laughs> no i know what you're saying but i also think like of the people we should feel sorry for they'd be like how dare you give aljamain sterling this easy win that will not carry with it a whole lot of meaning in the eyes of fans um he will have to wait for the next one to get that opportunity in the meantime he will just take the money of an easy win now and if, i'm sure if, that he's not going to complain about that too much. if you'd been listening what I said was the system <laughs> failed everyone here. Okay. All Jermaine Sterling included, whether or not he cares to acknowledge that or you do, it's still true. And the system also failed fans who paid money for this and sat down and watched a one-armed dude go out there and try to fight all Jermaine Sterling. So it sucked on well, every level. And the thing is the, the point that you're making about them, the broadcast really knowing this stuff that to me uh, tells you how, we didn't necessarily just fail fans. We sort of willingly concealed shit from fans. Yes, we did. We, we Dana knew White, this. Dana White showed up at the press conference and it was like, he should have told us. Well, the interesting thing about the way he worded that was the question is, how did the commission miss this? That's the whole point of a pre-fight physical, right? The whole idea is to just make sure that these guys are physically fit to fight. And now you can make the point about, uh, hey... Is the commission's job to go in there and wrench on a guy's shoulder to see if it pops out? You know, we all know that those pre-fight physicals are a bit of a joke and a formality. And we've all heard the stories of the many, many serious injuries that fighters have managed to conceal uh, during pre-fight physicals. So that part, I guess, shouldn't be a surprise. But the question that they asked was, how did the commission miss this? And Dana White's response was, well, he should have told us. And it's interesting that somebody was asking, how did the commission not get it? And Dana White answered, it, with us, as in, we are the commission, basically, that basically, you know, not drawing a distinction between like, well, there is a firm regulatory body in place that we have no control over and no say over, and it's on them, but really, it's us. Yeah. And though saying afterwards being like, well, he should have told us, he should, and it's like, all right, I guess that I see why that's your boilerplate answer. But what, realistically, you don't think that he's going to come in there and be like, hey, guys, my shoulder is completely fucked up and I can't really do it. Like, we all know what happens if you pull out of a, a title fight like that or you, you tell the UFC you're not physically fit to fight. They're not going to necessarily appreciate it. And they're not going to be really pleased with you. They're not going to be really enthusiastic about rescheduling when works for you, TJ, to get your title shot. When, when would be great, great for you? They're not doing that. He knows that he's making the same calculation. Like say, if I want this money, I got to take this fight, whether I feel like I can do it or not. And so he's not going to tell him if he thinks he can get in there and do it. And they don't necessarily always want to know uh, as much as they act like it afterwards. And so I think when you start to hear all these people like saying, we knew we kind of had a sense and we didn't tell you because we wanted to get you in the door first. Like, we don't let you know that what's the real story with the bearded lady until after you've bought the ticket. Then we don't care if you know so much anymore. Like, we, we wanted you in the door. We wanted you to pay the pay-per-view price. And then we'll tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we knew this one was kind of going to be bullshit for one reason or another. 
And that's one of the problems with having the broadcast basically be run by the promotion and not completely separately as run by the media company. Like these are basically the UFC's people out here telling us the story on the broadcast. The way, way more the UFC's people than any of them are ESPN's people. Yeah. If Dana White, after being president of the UFC for 20 years, is going to sit there in front of the media and tell us our best hope of diagnosing these pre-fight injuries is to wait for the fighters to tell us. I don't believe you, man. I don't believe yeah. that that's what you think. And also, if if TJ Dillashaw is being honest that this injury happened in April and that he dislocated his shoulder upwards of 20 times during his fight camp, and then he's going to travel to Abu Dhabi and compete in a UFC fight, and no one at the UFC knows that, no one, no one has gotten a text or someone said something to him or they overheard something's wrong with TJ Dillashaw's shoulder and then he's going to hide all week during fight week and you're going to pretend like you didn't know he was hurt. I don't believe you. I just yeah. don't believe you. But again, I mean, as much as I want to say like TJ Dillashaw fucked up by doing this and he sort of acknowledged it right away that he held the division up he stood in other people's way who might have been uh credible contenders who could have come in here and given us a better fight uh kind of gypped fans in that way that we we paid for a fight that he knew wasn't didn't really have much of a chance of being serious or competitive and yet i completely understand why a fighter knowing how this whole sport works and how the system works thinks I got to get paid. Yeah. Like I, there, there's not going to be a whole lot of more opportunities to get paid like this. And Hey, who knows? Uh, maybe I go in there, I land one big punch and I knock him out. He said afterwards, that's one reason why I was kind of trying to talk shit to him about wanting to stand and strike with me. Cause I knew if I got taken down that that's probably when I was going to have problems with my shoulder. So I yeah. thought maybe I'll just bait him into this and give myself a chance. I mean that I, I believe that was a real thought process for him because you know how fighters think they, they yeah. you know, even if they realize what they're about to do is a bad idea, they believe in themselves. They have to, otherwise they wouldn't have got this far. Probably the guy's first paycheck in 15 months, so uh, I understand. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we were writing Sean O'Malley's obituary over the past few months, basically as soon as this matchup with Peter Yawn was announced. And so we will fully get into, I think, hashing out the decision and how we felt about it. But regardless of whether or not you think Sean O'Malley deserved to win the decision, I feel like in some ways, maybe we owe him an apology. And I don't necessarily yeah. like saying that because... Uh, we have not always been huge proponents of Sean O'Malley, despite the fact that he comes from our home state of Montana, but he went out there against the number one contender in the division and he looked like he belonged there for 15 full minutes. So before we even address the question of whether or not Sean O'Malley should have got the split decision over Peter Yawn, I want to say that from the beginning, good job by him. Uh, we were wrong. Yeah. Uh, even if. They had read Peter Yan's name there at the end, which I was fully expecting them to do. I was already impressed with how well Sean O'Malley had done in that fight. Yeah. Uh, and how he managed to hurt Peter Yan at several points. And you could see Peter Yan got 
transformed into a different kind of fighter than he usually is. Not only the number of shots he was taking in there to to try to get this one to the ground, but at times where he's shooting from way far out just to kind of suggest, I do not even want to mess around with this on the feet if I don't have to. Let's just... Let's get down there on the floor and we put this guy on his back and that's at least I can get him to stop punching me in the face. So I did not expect Sean O'Malley to do anywhere near that well. We It was pointed out to us on maybe one of the CME live chats where somebody wrote in to be like, this is the number one fighter against like the number 11 or 12 guy in the division. Here's what every division would look like if we booked that fight right now, number one versus number 11. And it was sort of laughable in a lot of those divisions. And then here Sean O'Malley came in here and really did well. Like looked like he uh, could compete at that level. Like he was uh, not at all out of his depth the way we... I think maybe kind of expected that this was going to be the moment where uh, the the fame and the hype exceeded the ability a little bit. And it absolutely wasn't. Yeah. And that's true regardless of what you think of the decision. Didn't happen at all. Uh, in fact, he probably, regardless of what you think is a decision, like we found out a lot about Sean O'Malley in this fight. That was the thing we didn't know beforehand because there had been so much weirdness around his other fights. And there was some weirdness involved in this one too. You might want to call it the Sean O'Malley factor at this point. But like we didn't, we had no idea how good this guy was headed into this fight because of the previous matchups and because of how some of those fights had played out. And he went out there and went toe to toe with Peter Yawn for 15 minutes. So I feel like I got a ton of, of usable data about Sean O'Malley. And it turns out he pretty good. He pretty good yeah. fighter. So, well, and not only going toe to toe with Peter Jan for 15 minutes, if we were scoring this by Stockton rules, Chad, based on who took the most damage, based on who would have likely won, if it would have just content continued indefinitely. I mean, if there were two more rounds and it looked like that was more and more Sean O'Malley's fight, maybe, Maybe Stockton I, rules. Hey, man, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I didn't think he won this one based on the actual rules. And the one thing I got to say, regardless of who you think won this, just in terms of public perception of how these things are scored and what the judges decisions should be. We got to get the UFC broadcast team to stop talking about takedowns like they are on the board, like you're putting points on the board is how they talk about takedowns. When in fact, that's not how you score fights anymore, man. You don't even consider those unless you think the damage and the striking is equal or that the takedowns and top control is the most uh, dominant thing that happens in the round, the most effective thing that happens in the round. So like if you think that Sean O'Malley outstruck Peter Yawn in the first round, which I do, you don't even consider those takedowns. You don't consider the takedowns where Peter Yawn didn't really do anything with them. And so I feel like the discourse is still broken around takedowns when the UFC broadcast team is talking about, oh, that's a massive takedown by Peter Yawn. Like, it's not. It's not unless you think that the work on the feet was equal. Like, that's that's just, and I don't even I like that. I don't even agree with that. I don't even think that this is a good way to score fights anymore. But that's how you score them at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that Peter Yawn probably deserved to win the decision, but I also thought it was close. And that you you can't get too upset either way it goes there, um, but I like I wondered if this had been the exact same fight except it had been the number one guy versus the number three guy instead of number one versus number eleven if if they would not come in with such different expectations would it have seemed a little more reasonable because I think that there were a lot of people standing there afterwards being like well okay close fight good showing Sean O'Bally but no way did you beat Peter Yan. Because we just, our brains are not wired to even accept that yet. Yeah. I mean, I think he kind of did, though. 
I thought that he I thought that he won the damage and the striking in the first round. And so Peter Yawn's kind of ineffective takedowns didn't count for anything. In round two, I think the damage and the striking was equal. So in that case, Peter Yawn's grappling and top control actually did count. So I gave him the second round. And the third round, it's weird that people, the discourse I keep seeing around this fight keeps saying it all comes down to how you scored the first round because I thought the first round was pretty clear cut for Sean O'Malley. I thought the third round was much closer. And if you thought the striking was equal in the third round or you thought the damage was equal, or you thought that Peter Yawn's counter left hook outweighed Sean O'Malley's head kick, uh, then I'm not going to argue with you if you think that Peter Yawn should have got the decision. But like honestly, as I was watching it, I thought it was real close, but I kind of gave Sean O'Malley the edge in that third round. And so I probably would have had it 29-28 for him. But if you told me you had it the opposite way, owing to that third, I wouldn't argue with you. Well, I mean, now though, the, the Sean O'Malley just jump way up to where there's no nothing to do except put him in there against the very best now because I you, you recall beforehand we were saying uh winner of this fight next for the title just like a uh, winner of lightweight title was going to fight uh, Alexander Volkanovsky next that was one of the ways we were selling this fight is by naming these clear stakes and then you come out of it and Dana, one of the things that Dana White seemed very frustrated at the press conference was somebody asking like okay now what um what's next at bantamweight and him being like I don't know. What do you think? And it's like, wait a minute. I thought that's what we were doing here, right? Like, if at least you had led me to believe, um, you know, that if if Peter Yan had gone out there and won, that that was going to stamp his ticket to another title fight. And Sean O'Malley wins it. Now we're going to act like it's it's unknowable what we'll do at bantamweight. Maybe Henry Cejudo, he even suggests. <laughs> All it took was a Sean O'Malley win mm-hmm. against Peter Yan to get Dana White to remember that Henry Cejudo was on his roster. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it seems kind of interesting. We'll see what happens. But I think that there are some interesting options at Bantamweight right now. Uh, all right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, you know, I mentioned having a little gathering at my house to watch these fights. Had some friends over. Some friends who are, you know, very accustomed to watching these fights, some who are less accustomed. As we're sitting around watching it, you know, a night like this, an interesting fight event like this, there's always going to be some questions that some people have. I did not anticipate that the most difficult question to answer was going to be, what's up with that baby in the background holding a cell phone? Oh no, friends, that's no baby. (laughs) That's Hasbulla. He's actually under contract to the UFC. And then the inevitable question becomes, why? And I don't have an answer for that one, Chad. I just don't. Clearly, if you looked at the UFC's social media at all this week coming into this event, you knew that somebody got in the social media director's ear for the UFC and said, listen, there's no such thing as too much Hezbollah content. Give it to us all. Give us just... Empty the tank when it comes to Hezbollah stuff. More Hezbollah promotion than there was for any single one fighter on this card. And you can't watch the event without seeing him. He's back there. The the guys, they they treat him like he's a little baby. They're tickling him. They're lifting him up. They're holding him around. Uh, And somebody's asking me, why? What is the deal with this guy? I don't know. I wish somebody could tell me. Tell me what the appeal is. Are you laughing with him? Or are you laughing at him? Because I think a lot of you are telling yourselves that you're laughing with him, that it's all a joke you're in on together. But I think if you had to explain it, 
you would realize that it is not that. That it is the other thing. And that seems super weird and kind of shitty to me. I mean, Hezbollah is a... Is, a, like an adult, he can do what he wants. If that's how he's going to make his money, fine. Everybody got to do what they can. We sell what we have to sell in the capitalist nightmare. But the rest of you, all the rest of you, what's up with you? What's your deal? I'm just saying. I feel like every time you think it can't get any stupider, the UFC makes fun of a guy for being a little person and the president starts a slap fighting league. Just like every time you think, <laughs> oh, we've reached the bottom. They're like, no, we absolutely have not. We can go lower. Uh, well, Ben, I just wanted to remind everyone from my just saying stuff, like I said at the top of the show, this Saturday, you and I getting together over at your house, putting on the TV, building a wall around our hearts, getting prepared to watch Anderson Silva against Jake Paul in the boxing ring. And in fact, when I was sitting at home watching UFC 280 on Saturday, I was struck with the ridiculousness of that that's what we're going to do because I was like, well, we should have had a damn watch party for UFC 280, but no. That's not how we do it over at the UFC or CME Patreon. We're going to be having a watch party for Anderson Silva versus Jake Paul this Saturday. You can get in, come hang out with us for just $1 if you go to patreon.com and and join up. I guess this week I'm just saying, if we were scoring it just uh, according to the dance-off, it's already 10-8 Anderson. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. How Jake Paul going to let a 50-year-old man outdance him like that? Ben folks, I'm sure you saw this video on the internet. Anderson Silva has got the moves, my friend. Whereas Jake Paul, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, especially as a Looks former like a Disney kid. You'd think he would have some better caveman out there. Just I'm just saying Anderson Silva 10-7 in the dance competition. Wow. That is going to do it. Off in a hole. Oh no. <laughs> that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Hopefully we'll see you on Saturday. Head over and join the Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event for all of you who are already $20 patrons. CME after hours starts right now for the rest of you. We are done. We are through. We are out. Now I'm just going to ask you this question that we got here from co-main event podcast patron. Or no, I guess this is just Josh from Virginia wrote in to ask us this question that we did not get to. He says, we kind of touched on this, but between Chamayev hanging out with his arms around Kadyrov's son just hours after his dad shows up on video in war torn America, 